Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 96 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Thursday, October 25th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Loddick, and I want to wish a very happy birthday to my mother. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, That's Mom. Great. 68 today. Very exciting. Um, I should actually come in down this weekend. We're having a, a naming ceremony for Sydney. Oh, that's really great. So, so tomorrow night, we're actually taking my parents out to uh, Kimori Tatsuya. Um, oh, for your favorite places, I know. Um, although I have to say, you know, having now been able to eat in person at Franklin, um, I, you know, I, my views might have to change a bit on Austin restaurants. We did have a fine dining experience uh, the other night at Franklin as part of the Strauss Center's Cyber Boot Camp uh, event. Uh, Here's my koozie. Th- yeah, and is that the one with the cyber barbecue uh, totally. logo on the back? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so bas- basically, I with no real reason or justification kind of <laughs> combined the cybersecurity training concept with the let's eat barbecue concept and we hashtag the whole thing as the cyber barbecue. And, and I'm not sure that our out-of-town guests, I should say your out-of-town guests, um, and your in-town guests like me, well, <laughs> I, I did. I'm not sure the out-of-town guests quite appreciated just how um, VIP and experience it was. Or just to walk, just to get walk, dropped just off and walk right in. walk into Franklin and not wait in line for four hours for barbecue. And to, and to go through the line multiple times if you wanted, as Seriously. several people did. That was awesome. I don't know what you're talking about. I, did, I, I left. I, I left because <laughs> Heather and I went and saw a play. Although, the, play, the play that goes wrong. So so I, I asked you before the play, and I'm curious. Like I asked you if the play is is actually any different from Noises Off. It it is. It's it's I'd say it's more manic. Uh, it's, Noises Off is pretty manic. It's less. Uh, you know, there's like the the 70s feel for uh, Noises Off the 70s. Oh, and this is less. No, this is like set in. It's like the the shtick is friends. The shtick of the the play that goes wrong <laughs> is it's like wait, it, let me guess. The play goes wrong. It, it's the same idea where like every no one can, nothing can go right and you know, it's just one slapsticky moment after another. But it's so it's, it's like the Mets season. It was a lot like or the, the Giants se- season. The team that goes wrong. Or the Knicks season. The team that goes wrong. By the way, we are so so we'll get to why what we're actually going to do today in a minute. But oh, well, we're not just going to catch up. No, yeah. although it is kind of fun to do that. Um, we are heading for a potential scenario where my two college football teams won't actually meet on the field, but we'll be competing against each other for the fourth spot in the in the college football championship semifinals. Hook 'em horns. Or or go blue. Yeah, I think that's a pretty obvious call for you because I mean, who pays you? <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. All right. Um so what are we doing? So there's there is stuff going on. You know, we had talked briefly about maybe doing an episode on the sort of horrifying events yesterday with all of these package bombs being mailed to various prominent um, political figures and media organizations. I think we, we both want to sort of let that story, you know, germinate a little bit and and yeah. see where it goes. We've talked before about the, you know, the myriad overlapping authorities for domestic terrorism. We'll have more to say, just maybe not quite yet. Yeah, we, I mean, we really have, I think during the, the when the bombing situation in Austin was unfolding, yep. Yep. we talked a lot about what, what counts as terrorism, what counts as domestic terrorism, what laws apply here. This isn't, you know, this is a politically horrifying, policy horrifying. Legally, it's very straightforward. These, yep. are, obvi- these are straightforward crimes. And so we're going to wait and see on that one before um, we talk about it. You know, we try though we might. I don't think we could make a whole episode out of the latest status report in Doe versus Mattis, which was filed last <laughs> night, where the parties are asking for yet another 14-day extension. No, but we at least did deliver on our promise that there would be that same news report on <laughs> W. Mattis. What else? We've got kind of a lightning round going here before our deep, deep dive. dive. 
We'll have the deep dive in a moment. You don't even know what the deep dive is about, listeners. You're like, wait, what What are they doing? Should I, should I stop listening now, or should I at least wait to hear what it's a deep dive about? Although, the episode title probably gave it away. Well, how, yes, it's true. That They'll know. What about this? Uh, the P-Club. The, the P-Club, P-Club is back. It's back. That's great. The uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is quarried. It is quarried. The incorrateness has abated. <laughs> Gosh. And I wonder why lawyers are, anyway. Oh, uh, we've abated the incorrectness, and so congratulations to all the new members, and just... Very happy to see that going, and uh, we'll see what role it plays because there will be new rounds of surveillance legislation in the future. Expect PCLOB to play an important role in that. Good segue to our deep dive topic. Indeed, it is. So, so we've you know we've been sort of mapping out for a while the sort of the the longer term, larger topics that we would love to talk about, go into sort of more depth about. Hopefully, you know, empower listeners to to know more about when they're at their cocktail party and having conversations about you know. FISA. Um, so today's topic actually is the first of a two-part deep dive. Bobby, it's it's too big for one episode. So there's deep dive and then there's diving deeper. And we're diving deeper um, into the origins and evolution of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. FISA! FISA. Um, so cool that it's even now the subject of a Jeopardy clue. <laughs> was it really? It was. Nice. Um, Torchy's Tacos once was as well. I just thought I'd mention. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Torchy's Tacos is, 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 is a better meal than FISA. <laughs> this is true. So um, so what we thought today, what we thought we'd do, listeners, is today in episode 96, we're going to basically introduce you to the background to FISA, the origins of FISA, some of the big debates over its enactment, and then just sort of a quick sketch of its core um, provisions and core functionality as initially enacted and basically up until 9-11. Um, and then we're actually going to record another deep dive tomorrow, dun, 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 um, where we bring the story to the present and where we finish with um, the innovations and the changes uh, that we saw in the USA Patriot Act, um, that we saw in the Protect America Act, perhaps most importantly in the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, um, then the Snowden Disclosures, the USA Freedom Act, and basically getting us to where we are today. Awesome. And I have to say, I mean, I think you and I both are of the view that it is literally impossible in any sort of accessible podcast to fully convey all of the intricacies and technicalities oh, and yeah. complexities of FISA. No, it, it, so we we debated about like, so when we get to the statute itself, the original version, should we, for example, should we parse the definition of electronic surveillance in its four different uh, constituent categories? In, in class, my spring class on mm-hmm. law of the intelligence community, you know, we'll spend an entire class, you know, doing the close reading of the statute and kind of mapping out the moving parts. Bobby, come on, I know you. It's more one, than one class. It's more than one it's class. More than one class. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, uh, yeah. So we're not going to try to do that in this uh, this sort of both radio because style that would, environment. Both because that would actually require preparation, and because we yeah. think we would lose all of you. <laughs> That's true. No, you can't do it in this format. So we're not. This is not where you. We're gonna. We're not going to teach the topic. Right. We're going to talk about it in a, in a more abstract sense. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Yeah, let me start teaching the topic. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, so so I think I mean to understand where FISA comes from. I mean, do you want to say a quick word about um, cats and sort of the the quick evolution? Like, so so the Supreme Court for a time, right, starting in 1928 in Olmstead, um, holds that the Fourth Amendment just has nothing to say about electronic surveillance as long as it's 
as long as it's implemented by uh, tapping a wire outside the home or the private office. Right. That, yeah. that, that as long as you're not intruding into the home itself, the fact that you are, you know, tapping a phone to listen to somebody is not an invasion of a privacy interest protected by the Fourth Amendment. So this highlights uh, a couple of critical framing points. First, um, we need to talk both about the Fourth Amendment and the statutory framework. And, and for people who don't, and I know we have some listeners who are not lawyers. Um, or not even American. That, exactly. So, so in the in the U.S. system, when you think about what what is the legal architecture for protecting our privacy from government surveillance, um, well, we have different layers of law, and there's different things at those layers pertaining to this topic. Obviously, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which is a Bill of Rights provision that provides uh, a prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. And also states that no warrant shall issue except upon probable cause, uh, et cetera. Uh, that seems relevant here. And as Steve just pointed out, though, there's a threshold question. Is the thing the government did to get the information, is it a qualifying search? And we might add, you know, and is the person who's at issue, is their interest, are they someone who's protected by the Fourth Amendment to begin with? So looking at it that way. Maybe before we say anything about statutes, we just dwell in the Fourth Amendment context for a while. And we say, first, there's a threshold question about which kinds of surveillance trigger the Fourth Amendment because of, well, what are the relevant variables? The Supreme Court in Olmstead back in the 20s says uh, physicality and, and location. That's really the key. And if the government's out at the AT&T or the Ma Bell switching station and tapping in there or doing it from the street or from the phone booth, um, you're, you're not your Fourth Amendment interests aren't implicated because at that time there was still this notion that it this was protection for your home and for particular places, not whatever you reasonably might expect would be private. Once you're in public. Yeah. So, okay. So that's Olmstead. That's 1928. Now Congress responds to Olmstead by yeah. passing the Wiretap Act. Yeah. You have this pattern in American law where every time there's Especially a, in the Fourth Amendment context. A, above all, right? Where the court says, yeah, we're not going to recognize it applying there. And then since it's a privacy matter, that is the sort of thing that can get Congress's interest because it broadly impacts people or might be perceived that way. And, and if, I can just, if I can just get on my soapbox for a second, one of the reasons why I actually think there's often a major difference between merits decisions by the Supreme Court and procedural decisions in which they avoid the merits is merits decisions can have this legislation forcing function. Ah. Um, and the Fourth Amendment is a great example of where that repeatedly and routinely happens. And, and so we'll see, and this will come out in some of this story, that if the Supreme Court issues a ruling and says, well, there's no protection for that, a lot of times Congress will step in. Now, when they step in, they're definitely stepping in in a way that will be meant to look like they're they're coming to the rescue of privacy. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. Well, and sometimes, it, sometimes it's a little bit less uh, protective than it might sort of seem. So after, after Olmstead uh, basically said, look, the government can tap this new technology of relatively new at that point of telephone communication. Obviously, the telegraph had been around for a while. There had been tapping going on. Um, Congress steps in uh, basically with the Radio Act, and you end up with there's, – there's some back and forth, two different statutes in that time period. The point is they come up with the rule that says uh, if someone has effectively tapped a communication – you can't uh, introduce that or share it with a third party. That's a felony now. And for the government, this this obviously was something that spoke in an, in an obvious way towards private wiretapping. Mm -hmm. But for the government, which was doing it for lawful government, otherwise lawful government purposes of criminal investigation or 
intelligence activity that might or might not pertain to criminal investigation, well, raised a question, like, were they also bound by the statute? And they argued that the statute should be read to exclude the government as, a, as an impacted party. The Supreme Court rejected that. I think the case was Nardone, mm-hmm. um, said that's not how this works. The government's bound too. So next step in the analysis for the government is, well, what if we don't share it with a third party? Like, what if we engage in wiretapping, purely keeping it internal to our organization? You might say, well, you're, you know, there's one person doing the tap. They're going to share it with somebody else. <laughs> the, the rule's triggered. The government's position was, no, no, no. As long as it's kept within the team and we don't turn around and say, show it to a jury, we're free to continue tapping. So what you end up with there is a bit of a bifurcation. Criminal law enforcement wiretaps are no good, or at least not for use as evidence at trial, because it was clear the statute would bar that. But the government took the position that as long as it was going to keep the fruits of the uh, tap internally, it could continue to act. And this kind of comes home to roost later on when FDR introduces a further wrinkle in this. The idea that foreign intelligence collection, if you're engaging in national security wiretapping, you're monitoring foreign agents, not because you're going to prosecute somebody, but because you're trying to gather foreign intelligence information, maybe that is categorically distinct from all the other situations anyway. So um, you get, by the time of World War II, uh, a growing amount of counter-Nazi and and also counter-Soviet surveillance activity that's taking place. Plus, possibly, I don't really know the details on this, maybe you do, I think still some amount of uh, law enforcement-related intelligence, uh, sorry, law enforcement-related wiretapping, but not to gather evidence for trial, but rather to seed for other types of searches you might do. Yes, although, of course, that opens up the possibility that you're using the the wiretap as a pretext, not, not as a pretext, but as a as a means of cluing you in no, right. to where yeah. you should be looking for said evidence. No, that's right. And this is a theme that we'll come back li- right. to later on. So, so let's fast forward a bit. I mean, so so um, the statute obviously is is pushed back and forth through judicial interpretation over the next 25, 30 years. But I think really the sort of the two big moments that really start helping to, to provoke the conversation that ultimately culminates in FISA. First is the Supreme Court's 1967 decision in Katz. And then second is the sort of the the various, I think, Bobby, controversial activities of the Nixon administration, um, right? That that together, those two things really helped us to te- to set up the, the the table. I would add a third one. Uh, and so the Keith case, which will sort well, of flow which, from that, which is a reaction to Nixon, right? I mean, the yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. So so we'll map that out. You want to do cats? Yeah. So cats. All right. So cats is the landmark 1967 Supreme Court case where the court overrules Olmstead and another case called Goldman. Um, and holds that actually the Fourth Amendment does apply even outside the home if the um, search is invading, right? If the, if the government, if the government's action is invading uh, a reasonable expectation of privacy, right? In other words, Katz creates the idea that we can have a reasonable expectation of privacy in things outside the home. Um, and of course, controversially, that there's a sort of hybrid objective subjective ass- assessment of whether the thing at issue is something in which we really do have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And this really, this is the foundation layer for modern uh, Fourth Amendment uh, reasonable expectation of privacy analysis. It, of course, it's coming against the backdrop of what we described earlier, which is the statute's already keeping the government for wiretapping to gather evidence to use in court, but there is national security or foreign intelligence gathering and domestic intelligence gathering going on anyways. 
which seemed okay because under the old rule, there was no Fourth Amendment problem, just a statutory problem. Now, thanks to Katz, there's both a statutory consideration and now a broadly applicable seeming constitutional problem. And so the question then, so Katz, of course, creates a you know, generation, multiple generations of jurisprudence about exactly which kinds of things Americans have a reasonable expectation of privacy in, right? So, so when we talk about reasonable expectations of privacy, that is all going back to the formulation cats articulated 51 years ago. So if you're the, the government agents, uh, FBI or otherwise, who are engaging in wiretapping for surveillance purposes relating to intelligence, not for law enforcement, you look at this development and you realize, of course, this is a problem. What's the right analysis? <laughs> um, Katz expressly reserved decision on whether the rule it was announcing was applicable not just to law enforcement scenarios, but to national security investigations yep. that were not law enforcement investigations. And and that highlighted something that, of course, the, the government side, of course, uh, thought made a lot of sense, which is, oh, well, that's a rule for law enforcement. Um, this new development doesn't actually impinge our non-law enforcement investigations. So Including we can foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence or domestic Mil intelligence. Military. And so we will carry on as before, which which they did. So then, so things kind of proceed through the late 60s into the early 70s, <laughs> and then it all kind of hits the fan. So it hits the fan. I mean, let's be clear. So President Nixon was not the first president to use the U.S. intelligence community and various intelligence agencies to spy on Americans. I mean, we know the FBI, we know, you know, in various contexts, we know CIA in various contexts. But I think that it's, we often, we often, uh, um, how do I say it? We often associate it with Nixon, right? Because I think a lot of what came to light what started during the Nixon administration. Well, you know, the, the unique thing about Nixon was the extent to which he was identifying. I say unique. The t at that time, unique thing about Nixon was the extent to which he was identifying people as political enemies yep. and as as policy enemies who he wanted to, you know, find ways to undermine and control or right. sideline them. He wanted dirt. And and Jager Hoover was was in a position to deliver the dirt to him. Um, the amount of domestic investigations that went on previously, uh, it was certainly you know not unique to Nixon. This did go on yeah, yeah. throughout the 20th century. It's Nixon's special contribution to t turn it into a, a political hit list, if you will. A political hit list, and also you know I think the combination of how Nixon used these authorities and the broader circumstances of his resignation, right, and the aggressive congressional investigations yeah. that Watergate helped to provoke meant that we were exposed to a lot of what had hitherto been secret, you know, as sort of the t that, that Watergate actually ends up becoming the tip of the iceberg and that Americans learn in many cases to their horror that for decades um, various intelligence you know, elements had been carrying out these kinds of operations. Right, so revelations about maybe army intelligence is monitoring this. I mean, usually, yep. usually the situation was you have one or more parts of the broad national security establishment monitoring anti-war activities. Uh, Spying on Martin Luther King. Civil rights activities. Yep. There are all sorts of things where the, the fundamental justification had been we're worried about Soviet or communist influence on this or there's some sort of foreign influence. So you had this uh, intertwining of ostensible foreign intelligence concerns, which are thought to justify these things, but intertwining with what were obviously domestic political concerns. And so we really and, see and this blurring of the foreign yeah. domestic line. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that. And um, so it, it, we should mention, too, of course, the Vietnam War and the, and the massive amount of, of protest activity that yep. it engendered the larger collapse in trust in institutions yep. of the late 60s, yep. early 70s. Uh, all this helps both to fuel the, the media 
leaks to the media, and then the uh, election of more reform-minded members of Congress, yep. or the, or to some extent, the uh, the the ones who've been there uh, for a while already, also getting enthused about reform type stuff. And you have an unusually reform-minded Congress that begins digging into things, and then that brings even more to public light through yep. the church and the, to a lesser extent the Pike committee, and, and it takes on sort of a, a momentum all its own. Now, I think the critical moment in this whole process, you and I agree, is the Keith case. Um, so the Keith case, the the caption is United States versus United States District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. Um, say that three times fast. I, I can, but I, what I'll say is um, what what that should tell you um, from just here on the caption is that this was a mandamus action, um, and the reason why it's called the Keith case is because Judge Damon Keith was the district judge against whom the U.S. government was seeking a writ of mandamus. So the uh, case arises in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Speaking of go the blue. Wolverines. <laughs> So uh, there's a there's a CIA, CIA has an office there for for various purposes. Uh, <laughs> so, well, you know, CIA has offices all over the place, uh, and it's you know re- recruitment, talking to American foreign travelers who come back to the United States. There's all sorts of reasons. So there's a known location there, and uh, a guy named Pan Plamondon. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the last I think name. Pun Pun Plamondon. Pun. Does I say Pan? Yeah, yeah, it fits right. Pan uh-huh. uh, Pun Plamondon. Uh, is is an anti-war activist and someone who's a, a well-known figure in the local community. He and, a few and, and, in, the, and in the White Panther Party. Oh, is that right? Yes. And so they uh, they decide at some point they're going to put a bomb overnight, not to kill somebody, but on the doorstep to to destroy the property, kind of uh, lash out in a, in a violent way against the CIA presence there, to which they objected. And as I love to say when I teach this uh, case, that it's it's a lot about CIA activities overseas and hostility to that. That does not make this a foreign intelligence investigation. It's all domestic. There's no allegation that that Pun or his colleagues were in any way under the direction or control or in any wise connected to a foreign power. It's purely domestic. The fact that their their beef was a foreign affairs related beef, that's not the right categorization. This was a domestic intelligence investigation before it was a law enforcement investigation. So they were uh, surveilled. And without a warrant, to be clear, under circumstances which, under the new reasonable expectation of privacy test, clearly if it had been a law enforcement investigation, there should have been a warrant. So they eventually are prosecuted for this. And during the prosecution, it comes out that there had been this earlier stage surveillance with no warrant. That's what leads to the litigation of this issue. Um, The court has several possibilities in front of it. The Supreme Court takes the case. And in ruling on this, they could have said... Look, the reasonable expectation of privacy test applies in all contexts. It doesn't. We don't care what the government's purpose of the investigation was. This was a type of collection activity that constitutes a search because it infringed expectations of privacy, uh, intelligence, domestic, foreign, law enforcement. It doesn't matter. Simple case. So it'll be suppressed. They they could have gone that route and left it at that, or they could be a little more nuanced and they could say, well, it kind of depends. It depends on, it's possible that the type of search does constitute an exception to the larger Fourth Amendment protection. That is, yes, it's a search, but if what you're doing is a certain type of non-law enforcement activity, we are nonetheless not going to impose any kind of warrant requirement. Bearing in mind that up to that point, the only type of warrant you could get would be a warrant based on probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed or is going to be committed or that the fruits or um, you know, the, the evidence of the crime would be gathered there. 
And if it's an intelligence investigation, there may or may not be a crime to which you could hook any of this at all. Your purpose may be different. Um, the court takes a middle road route and it draws a distinction between foreign intelligence, which this wasn't, and domestic intelligence, which this was, basically saying, look, it, it may not have been a law enforcement investigation. It was intelligence about security threats, but it was purely domestic and expressly once again carving out the possibility that foreign intelligence might be exempt from the Fourth Amendment in this respect, or exempt from the warrant requirement. You still have to be a reasonable search. Uh, it says domestic intelligence is not, but it did not follow that you had to go get a criminal law warrant and that you had to show there was a crime committed. Um, I think one of the most fascinating parts of Keith is that the court describes this whole procedure as a roadmap for Congress. If it wants there to be this sort of activity, there's going to have to be a warrant, but it can be a tailored kind of warrant where the showing's going to be different. It'll still be probable cause, but instead of showing probable cause to believe a crime's committed, it would be whatever it is that's the object of the intelligence activity. So I think there's, I also just want to read this one quote from Justice Powell's opinion. Not only does he say that, but he says, further, the instant case requires no judgment on the scope of the president's surveillance power with respect to the activities of foreign powers within or without this country. So Keith is remarkable in both directions, right? That on the one hand, it holds that there's no such thing as a domestic intelligence exception to the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment. On the other hand, it expressly reserves whether there's a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant clause, and in the process it says you you might be you Congress might be able to satisfy the warrant clause through a warrant that actually is in some respects different from the classical you know search warrant in a criminal case. Right, and so this is where in class I always turn to class I say so what year did Congress create the Domestic Intelligence Surveillance Act the DISA, and thereby stares at me for a while, and usually somehow raise their hand and say. Uh, they've never done that. So just to recap, Keith says domestic intelligence may be permissible, but you're going to have as a as a category, but you're going to have to have a tailored kind of warrant for that. And Congress has never taken up that opportunity. Well, and I think here the timing matters. So in 1972, I think it was perfectly reasonable for Justice Powell to say that. But turn to 73, 74, 75, when you have not just the sort of the fall of Nixon, but you have the Pike and Church committees. You have the exposure of COINTELPRO, and you have the, 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 I think, the greatest period. I would even include Snowden, right, in American history of public debate over intelligence scandals. Oh, for sure. No, it was, look, I'll say this about that debate. It was, it was a far better debate than our yes. post-Snowden debate. Well, there's no question that make the, debates great again. the mid-70s period was an environment in which there was no chance whatsoever that Congress was going to somehow pick up the mantle of the Keith case and say, you know what, let's do that. And more to the point, the FBI, which is the relevant entity for this most above all, uh, by that point is in no position to push for it. And you might say, well, okay, but later on, why didn't this come up later on? Well, the truth is, if you if you have foreign intelligence carved out as a separate matter, which is, of course, where we're going, you don't really need this. That's the thing. And so and so I think, you know, the the domestic intelligence surveillance act that you might have gotten after the things calmed down was mooted by FISA. Well, not mooted, yeah. mooted strong. I, I don't mean formally no, no, mooted. No, no, but my objection is different than that. I would say that it's that when it really doesn't, when there's no foreign affairs hook, and this is the critical point, that, yeah. that Keith is, there's no agent of a foreign power element to it. So the stuff that FISA later on will cover, it's not relevant for this DISA, this potential DISA category, but there's 
there's very little, if anything, that the FBI should properly be doing, that would want to be doing, want to spend resources on, that can't be picked up through the mechanisms that are available to it through law enforcement investigative means, including what, uh, you know, right after the Katz case, they got statutory authority to use this stuff in court in the form of Title III warrants, uh, wiretap orders. So you can do what you need to do with the purely domestic stuff without Diza. Sure. So it becomes it becomes too politically hot to do it. And, and not necessarily. No exactly. Right. So round about the end of the Church and Pike committees in 76 and early 77, Congress sits down and says, all right, we need to fix this. Um, and I, I don't want to summarize the whole sort of series of proposals, but the, the basic animating idea is some kind of compromise where Congress is going to create a statutory framework for foreign intelligence surveillance, at least when conducted in the United States, um, where the executive branch is, where, where it's going to be a statute the executive branch actually supports, um, and where the courts are going to have a role, right? That some some role for all three branches, where each branch is giving a little and getting a little. The Carter administration uh, at that time, one of the key figures from the national security community was our, our colleague, Admiral Bobby Inman, who still teaches, and we see him all the time here at UT. Uh, and Admiral Inman is, uh, you know, NSA director. Um, later on, he's also over at CIA, but at this time, it's when he's at NSA. And he has told me many times, you know, that what it was like explaining to people how we can all be better off if we embrace this. And so your, your, your model of this being sort of a each branch is going to have a stake in this and we're all going to be better off really was how they looked at it, even from the national security establishment side of things at that time. So, all right. So without sort of getting too deep into the weeds, right, the, the compromise as I see it had three major elements. And let me know if you agree with, with my portrayal of it. So major element number one, the executive branch agrees that foreign intelligence surveillance activities within the United States will be governed by statute, um, right? And that with a couple of built-in exceptions into the statute for emergencies, that generally there is not going to be such a thing as extra statutory foreign intelligence surveillance authority on U.S. soil, um, right? That, you know, there, there are some... There are some well, for, what, for electronic surveillance. For electronic surveillance. We'll get to physical. Physical comes later. Yeah, yeah. The, but, yeah. But as long as we're talking about wiretapping, yes. yeah. So the in, physical in stuff comes... Intercepts. Right. Physical stuff comes later, right? Like 98? Well, we'll talk... We'll, we'll I, I'm really trying right. to exclude, like, so none of this was meant to say you couldn't follow the, the diplomat no, 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 from the no, no, Soviet Union. Of course. Of course. That. Okay. Um, so, so, the, so from the executive branch's perspective, what they were giving up was claims to unilateral authority in this space. Right. Can I, and to put a fine point Please. on it, they're giving up the option of rolling with the possibility that the exception that was flagged as a possibility in, in Keith, Keith and Katz both, right. but especially Keith, they gave up on trying to bet on that and right. proceeding without any warrant obligation whatsoever and claiming and hoping that the Supreme Court would indeed decide in the end that if it's a foreign intelligence investigation, that even though you're wiretapping, you're allowed not to have a warrant. And, and they were predicting they weren't necessarily going to win that. They might. They might not. And to this day, the Supreme Court has never passed on whether there is, in fact, a foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause. Exactly. Even as lower courts have. Okay, so that's really important. What was the executive branch getting? They were getting legitimacy. Right, they were getting the the ability to say when we conduct foreign intelligence surveillance, electronic foreign intelligence surveillance on U.S. soil, we are doing it with the imprimatur not only of affirmative statutory authority, see Youngstown Box One, but also judicial approval. And so this is actually going to 
increase. This is going to validate yeah. authority that until this point we've been exercising, you know, in the shadow of law. That's exactly right. They were they were getting legitimacy, and and through that they were also the door was thereby opened up to begin to use the fruits of this stuff. If later on in such an investigation you decide to prosecute. Now you've got a pathway to actually use this stuff as evidence. Exactly right. Um, right, that the statute will expressly allow for the admission of this information at trial. Okay, um, that's one. Two, let's talk about Congress, right? Congress is, um, what, what is Congress giving up and what is it getting? So let's start with what Congress is getting, right? Congress is getting um, the ability to basically, I don't want to say control because that's too strong, but to, to regulate Right, an area of executive branch power that up, up until that point it had largely not touched, right? That it had largely left, with the exception of maybe specific language in the Wiretap Act and in Title Three in 1968. So that's interesting. I'm trying to decide if I agree that they're getting something in a you know utility maximization yeah. sense. Um, they're they're certainly they're they're doing something that will be responsive to the widespread perception that there were foreign intelligence. Abuses happening domestically, yes. and so they're 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 answering the mail on that in a way that was quite real, quite visible, and quite significant. So yes, I think that's something they're getting. I don't think it opens the door towards it. It raised the question, but it didn't actually deliver anything on whether they could begin in a more heavy-handed way, be more prescriptive about just what it is the government could and could not do in that setting. No, I think that's right, but but. I think it's important, but but from the sort of separation of powers perspective, right? Congress is asserting its ability to be a coordinate actor in the space of foreign intelligence. Yeah, that it has, and, and of course, this is at the root of some of those mid '70s uh, life experiences that Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and others had, and and uh, David Addington, feeling that uh, what was going on in the '70s, and this wasn't the only example, but a whole series of statutes that went into a space that previously Congress had never gone into in all of American history in any significant way. And there, were the, there was a cohort of, of significant Republican national figures who felt, and conservative legal figures, who felt this was all outside of Congress's lane. And that is, it's an issue we're going to come back to in the second Deep Dive podcast. But the roots of it are right here with this statute and others like it. Um, I want to mention something that I think you'll agree with, but definitely tell me if you don't. It was widely and clearly agreed amongst all the actors in this that none of this was an attempt to impact the externally executed surveillance yep. activities of Holy NSA, overseas. overseas activities. So the big radar dishes pointed towards Soviet military activity in Central Asia. No one thought that this was or should be or even could be brought under judicial oversight. So so I don't know about could be, right? I, I want to I put a stick a pin in could be because I think yeah. you and I might disagree there. Yeah. But certainly, certainly, no one viewed what happened in 1978 as reaching outside the United States. Right. The whole idea was NSA is going to carry on in its former mode overseas. CIA right. is going to do its thing. Nothing will be changed there. But what we're concerned about are the Fourth Amendment equities that, that in, either because of who you are or where the collection took place, right. are peculiar to America. And Executive Order 12333, which is to this day the governing framework for most of those foreign overseas intelligence gathering activities, comes three years later. Um, okay, before we leave Congress, right, there's also the intelligence committees. And this is, I think, where you and I have already differed in the past and might differ going forward. But... One of the things that Congress both gets and gives up in this bargain is oversight of the authority it is providing through FISA by these brand new um, intelligence committees that did not previously exist 
Um, and the intelligence committees, what Congress is getting is the oversight in the first place, right? What Congress is giving up is standard oversight, visibility, and transparency, right? That Congress agrees to create the intelligence committees with a whole bunch of special rules to govern the secrecy of their oversight, the secrecy of their deliberation, the secrecy of their proceedings, and even the secrecy of the information that they have access to, as we've seen with our, your friend and mine, Devin Nunes. Oh, gosh. Um, so on, on whether they were given up anything by way of standard oversight procedures, uh, it's very tempting to say something along the lines of you can't give up what you didn't have. Yep. Uh, it begs the question, like, well, let me let me explain that before I, I you know digress from it. Um, what I mean to say is there obviously had been no oversight whatsoever, no no reporting to Congress, no no open hearings certainly, maybe the occasional periodic behind closed doors discussions, but there was no oversight mechanism for collection activities until when, the, until the Pike and Church committees. until the Pike and Church committees, which were now, very public. Exactly. Now, part of what's going on here too, we have to we have to mention just as part of the larger context the the parallel stuff happening with covert action. So with covert action, you've got uh, since the 1970s. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. So in the 1970s, you've got this. Uh, uh, statutory innovation to make the president sign written findings to justify uh, covert action activities, and then eventually these have to be uh, reported to the House and Senate Oversight Committees for Intelligence. And like collection oversight, which is what I think you're talking about, the collection oversight that's associated with um, c- collection activities that have nothing to do with FISA, but also this idea of oversight of the FISA process. Uh, to some extent, you've got a whole bunch of stuff now where Congress is asserting for itself a role to check in and to find out how things are going. Now, there there's sort of some congressional uh, jurisdictional questions for, and you know this better than I do, but for the FISC and its activities, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which we're coming to, um, doesn't the Judiciary Committee assert some jurisdiction Some, there? some, but it's actually, it's shared between Judiciary and Intelligence, yeah. and it's principally Intelligence. Yeah. So I, I would characterize the, the arrival of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees as something new under the sun that yeah. had never been there before. So pretty much from the congressional perspective, all gain, no loss. So I guess it depends on what your baseline is, right? Certainly compared to what was true for most of the modern era, that's true. In contrast to the very public oversight that was conducted by the Pike and Church committees, the intelligence committees were more modest. And so, so it's, just, it's just a question what your baseline is, right? But that, that Congress was saying, we don't anticipate a church committee in perpetuity, right? We, don't, we think that's antithetical to the idea of having a lawful foreign intelligence surveillance operation right. that we're going to have repeated, consistent public oversight. Uh, so this, I guess we should start talking about what this uh, non-public court process is going to be. Well, so, so I'm getting there. The, so I'm getting okay, the, you, oh, you have a third one you haven't even mentioned yet. The courts, right? Yes, yeah, the, what do the courts get? So this is, I, I think this is, the, we'll come back to the intelligence committees. I think they actually are an, an, an often neglected part of this process. But perhaps the most, I think, what sparked most of the constitutional debate in 1977 and 78 was this idea that they were going to create a new court, um, the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISC. Um, and that they were going to have Article Three judges because the FISA court was going to be a pool of, at the time, seven um, and today, 11 district judges um, chosen for temporary assignment by the chief justice, um, right? That what was controversial was, well, wait a second. 
what the hell is the court supposed to do? How is that court-like? What what judicial power are you asking the court to exercise? Where's the case or controversy? Where's the case or controversy? Now, this is interesting. I would say the, the roots of this problem are visible but not realized in the Keith case because yep. the Keith case expressly, the Supreme Court expressly invited Congress to create that domestic intelligence surveillance mechanism where the showing would not be that there's a crime that has been committed, but rather that there's some intelligence objective to be achieved. And right there, you can see already the problem you've identified. Well, wait a minute. Then is it still a case? Right. So um, this actually, so there actually is dueling testimony about this at the time. Um, A a government lawyer, um, Larry Silberman, who then becomes a a prominent D.C. Circuit judge and FISA Court of Review judge, um, says that he believes FISA is unconstitutional for exactly this reason. Uh, Mark Harmon, who at the time was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, testified that he thought it was constitutional. And the reason why, Bobby, turns out to be really important when we pivot to the more modern versions of FISA. What Harmon said is that um, the reason why in the ordinary case just ordinary law enforcement search warrant. The reason why that's a case, even though it's an ex parte application from the government, even though there's no adversarial proceeding, even though there's no, um, you know, there's no one showing up to represent the other side, is that the warrant is ancillary to subsequent proceedings. Um, and so it's not that the warrant itself is ex parte, it's that the underlying proceeding to which the warrant is ancillary um, is adversarial. That what Harmon says in his testimony um, is that that follows for FISA because just like in the ordinary warrant context, the government is applying for a warrant ex parte. Just like in the ordinary warrant context, the government is given the power to use the evidence it obtains from said warrant in a subsequent criminal proceeding. Um, and indeed, um, FISA also creates a civil remedies provision, right, in context mm-hmm. in which the electronic surveillance is conducted unlawfully. So Harmon says all these things mean that the government surveillance conducted under FISA is no different for purposes of Article 3 than government surveillance conducted under an ordinary run-of-the-mill search warrant. And, but while it's true with the law enforcement search warrants that there are some that don't result in prosecutions, that are not followed by chances to litigate, et cetera, um, it's vastly more likely to be the case with the FISA context that there will be no subsequent litigation and that, that the, the thing that makes it a case for controversy never actually materializes. Indeed, that, that, that however much this is a fiction in the ordinary warrant yeah. context, it's almost a complete fiction in the FISA context, partly because also the government so seldom even notifies uh, right, that, that you, you almost never know. Now, um, I wrote a paper a couple years ago called The FISA Court in Article 3, crazy title, yes. um, that basically said, you know, that's an interesting problem of itself as to whether original FISA actually lives up to the Article 3 justification. Um, it really runs into trouble when, starting just before 9-11, but especially after 9-11, Congress adds to the FISA court authorities beyond the warrant authority it's given in 1978. Let me ask you this, sort of as a matter of constitutional interpretation. Um, is it is it plausible to you um, that the arrangement was arguably unconstitutional ab initio, mm-hmm. 1978, mm-hmm. Um, but that four decades of consistent practice, some judicial precedent at the lower levels, mm-hmm. and then and then a lot of practical precedent, the gloss of history, yeah. has established to the point where it's settled now that this is okay, even if originally it was problematic? So I'm in general not especially sympathetic to the gloss argument in the context of Article 3, because I think Article 3 
cries out for formalism in ways that the Supreme Court has, with some exceptions, generally adhered to. Um, there's an alternative explanation. So Jim Fander um, has a theory of what he calls non-contentious jurisdiction, that there are certain species of judicial power that can be exercised without adverseness. Um, you know, whatever it is, I, I certainly think that the case is much stronger that classifies as consistent with Article 3. The real problem is when you pivot to modern FISA, and we'll yeah, save so that for tomorrow. The deeper dive. Um, but so, so you have this ex parte proceeding. Well, what is the proceeding? So under FISA, as enacted, the government goes to one of these seven district judges. Okay, oh, I say something about the preliminary steps because yeah. I find that a lot of a lot of people who don't follow this stuff closely. Uh, tend to just not even think about Sorry. all the the preliminary screen that goes on. Yes, before so, the government goes yeah. to FISA, so like, FISA court. So imagine you're a, you're an FBI agent. Uh, you've got something you want to surveil. You're in, you're in Minnesota. Um, the the chain is you you basically have to get the the local office to sign off on your desire to go to the FISA court to get approval to do this foreign intelligence wiretap. Then that gets vetted at Maine FBI. If Maine FBI's national security law branch approves it, then they kick it over to the office that's currently at the National Security Division at DOJ. There's the attorneys there who actually do the litigation in front of the FISA court. They go through it as well. You know, my understanding from loads of people I've talked to over the years is there's a lot of pushback. A lot of stuff gets gets pushed back and filtered at that stage. Um, more so than you would ever expect, For dramatically more warrant. so than an ordinary warrant. Yep. Then it goes in to the FISA court process. Well, wait, wait, you, yeah. you left out the last part. And then it has to be signed, right? The, the application, And then unlike an ordinary warrant application, which can be signed, I believe, by any assistant U.S. attorney, yeah. right? The warrant application in the FISA court initially, if I remember correctly, had to be signed by the attorney general, the attorney general. or the deputy attorney general. And that's now, I think, been expanded to include I think the, the assistant national security attorney division. I was going to say the yeah. assistant attorney general for the national security yeah. division. But, like, you know, so the, a senior political appointee Right. has to put their name on the thing and in the process own it. Right. And and while I'm sure many listeners think like, whatever, they, they're all on the same team, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, no one who's ever worked in these organizations thinks that doesn't mean anything. It means something, including the fact that you build up a substantial record uh, so that you can go in there with the ex parte materials to explain in the documentation. Well, you tell me, what is it you're supposed to prove right. if not that a crime has been committed? So listen, I mean, folks who have listened to this podcast long enough know that I am no great um, sort of adherent of the idea that the executive branch is always entitled to deference. Um, <laughs> I think you've, you've made it clear. Um, that said, even I believe that there is value to this process, right? That, that, that this is not an empty formality. Yeah. Look, just look at the fact that the, the, the process rejected the attempt to look at, to, to go to Fisk to get approval to crack open Zacharias Misawi's right. uh, laptop in the, in the days before 9-11. Right. So all this is to say, right, that, that the process, listen, I, I may think that the process is not of itself sufficient. That doesn't mean right. it's not adding significant yeah, right. value. Right. Um, all right. So imagine, Bobby, you've dotted your I's, you've crossed your T's, you've got your FISA application. What is the application actually supposed to demonstrate? Yes, that there is probable cause to believe that the target is of the a, electronic surveillance. Of the electronic surveillance is a person who is a foreign power or an agent. It's easier just to say agent of a foreign power, right? So that's where the foreign into and that the purpose of the collection is to gather foreign intelligence relevant information. To underscore it again, this is not in any way to show that a crime has been or has not been committed. It's not about that. It's about foreign intelligence gathering, but the person's got to be in that agency relationship to a foreign power. And I, let me say one thing. There's an additional series of sub-definitions, and I don't want to micro-parse them, if the target is a U.S. national. 
um, right? And and those those sub definitions, you can read them to require probable cause to believe that the individuals in Asian, uh, in, also involved in criminal activity. I think that's a little strong. Right, that that the, the the additional requirement if the target is a U.S. person is just that there is an additional reason to is that part of the reason why you think they're an agent of a foreign power has to do with their involvement in activity that could be illegal under particular U.S. laws. Right, right. So I guess the idea there, some would argue that somehow if it's a U.S. person, you can't use the FISA process unless you could in any event just use the criminal justice process. But you're going to use this process instead. That's just wrong. No, it's wrong. And it's why, been wrong from the founding, who, who, from well, the inception. Who would, have, who would have wanted that to be the rule? Right. The government would have gone kicking and screaming. And this that. comes up a lot with the, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised in the context of the Carter Page FISA application. Um, but this is how FISA has been from the get-go. Um, so again, just to stress it, it is probable cause to believe in. I think there's a, there's a good case to that well, discuss. Can I, can I go back to that just a second, just to underscore? Because yeah. as you mentioned, Carter Page, I, I realize now the the significance of of your comment. Yes. Um, look, just imagine you've got people at the Soviet embassy. It's 1979 or it's 1978 when we're oh, watching the Americans. This. Yeah, yeah, and you've got some you've got some Soviet diplomats. They're not committing any crimes. There's but but there's a there's an American employee who's not committing any crimes, but is an incredibly valuable source of foreign intelligence information because they're working with this Soviet person. And the idea that what Congress accomplished in 1978 was to create this mechanism, but to foreclose its use unless that U.S. person was actually engaging in crime that you could show probable cause of, even though it's manifestly the case that they've got good foreign intelligence information, I don't think it's that plausible. I think that's right. Okay. Um, so you go to the FISA court, you say, hey, judge, here's my probable cause. The judge, ex parte, in camera, sometimes with the hearing, but Bobby not automatically, um, reviews the materials. Um, and the judge, it is his only choice to approve or reject the application? No. Send it back for more information. Uh-huh. Send it back. Not good enough, but what about this? What about that? And that happens, my understanding is, uh, all the time. You know, if people want to, you know, follow somebody who's who really knows what they're talking about here, Kerry Cordero is a good follow. Um, there are loads of other people out David there these Chris. days. David, obviously, David Chris literally wrote the book about this. Uh, it's an iterative process. And so when people look at the raw final statistics, which used to be a commonplace in FISA discussions to say, well, it's a rubber stamp because I've seen that only one, you know, one application was rejected last year. The stats, and this, and this is a failure of the data gathering and reporting process, the stats don't in any way capture stuff that was withdrawn because the court made clear it wasn't going to approve it, stuff that was rejected initially, but then someone came back and with much more effort was able to show that indeed the person they're targeting was an agent of a foreign power. And also the, these conversations also tend not to do any comparative work showing what the the similar uh, strong rate of approvals are for ordinary warrant applications. All right. So now, so so the warrant is obtained, right? The, the let's, let's imagine there may, may or may not have been multiple rounds of pushback. The judge signs off on the warrant. The government has the warrant. The government goes off and conducts electronic surveillance. What does FISA say about what it can do with it? Do you mean in terms of what type of surveillance they can conduct? So, what type or? of surveillance, and then what they can use with the fruits of the what they can do with the fruits of the surveillance? Well, they, I mean, roughly speaking, you can do what they need to with it, right? This is, so this is use, all rough. Roughly speaking, should be the name of this then, podcast. <laughs> roughly speaking, about <laughs> FISA. Just roughly speaking. In you know, general. So, you, so the the point of it, the core point, is to take the information gleaned from the wiretap or radio intercept. Let's back up. The technologies that they're operating under in 1978, they're thinking about communications passed electronically on a wire of some kind, so copper or to a limited extent at that time, fiber optic, um, or through the air, through radio or microwave, whatever those sorts of transmissions might be. 
if they're being intercepted from within the United States or the target's U.S. person. Um, the point of doing all that is so you can inform the ordinary foreign intelligence gathering process for, for analysis purposes, to inform decision making. Now, if and when you decide that that person might actually be someone you want to prosecute, thanks to FISA, you can also use the fruits of that collection at trial as evidence. Now, and then, so this, I think this is a point that, that often gets lost. Um, of course, that raises constitutional questions, not just under the Fourth Amendment, right, but under the Sixth, because, of course, a, a criminal defendant has the right to confront the witnesses and the evidence against him. So FISA creates a mechanism for basically, Bobby, judicial review um, of the application of the warrant in the context of a criminal prosecution, much akin to the Supreme Court's uh, Franks versus Delaware decision came out right about the same time as FISA. The, a, a Franks hearing for a FISA application, um, where basically um, a criminal defendant uh, who is informed, as he has a right to be under FISA, that the government intends to introduce evidence against him obtained through a FISA warrant, is allowed to collaterally attack the FISA warrant before the judge. That's right. And, and that goes back to your point earlier about where there is an element of adversariality in case and controversy lurking in the background. So this stuff is used at trial historically with some frequency. And yeah. and when it's introduced, there's generally always a motion to suppress it. Um, the procedure that's then used is different from what you would normally see with a suppression motion. And that's, that's where it gets interesting. And interesting and controversial. So, so the way that 50 U.S.C. 1806F is written, um, in a normal France context, um, the defendant and his lawyer are entitled to see not just the warrant application, but the material supporting it. Right, the FBI affidavit or the, t the transcript of the testimony. Um, in the FISA context, it all goes to the judge in the first context, ex parte and in camera. And the judge is then supposed to make a determination about which aspects of the application and which supporting materials are necessary to properly adjudicate the Franks motion. Um, and of course, this is basically asking the judge to make a threshold determination that may very well be better suited to the assistance of adverse counsel. And so the statute authorizes judges, if they wish, and it's their discretionary call to go ahead and, and bring uh, opposing counsel into the discussion. Once they determine that the material that they want to uh, uh, share with opposing counsel is necessary right. to resolve the Franks motion. And, and the punchline of all this, of course, is that in, in the pre-9-11 period, never happened once. It was always resolved on an ex parte basis. And, and there's a fight that will happen after 9-11, although under classic FISA, um, about whether that, that procedure is actually willfully inadequate in a case called Daoud. Um, okay, so that's FISA up to 19 minutes. Now, Bobby, there's one major amendment, I think you and I agree, one before 9-11, which is to expand it from electronic surveillance to at least some physical surveillance as well. Um, well, so I think from the beginning, there's there's other things you can do now under classic FISA. Yep. And that includes, uh, and we should add that we've been talking electronic surveillance. This does include black bag jobs where what you're going to do is to go into a physical space. From the beginning, this was there to put a, a recording device, a, a bug or a camera. Um, later on, you get pen register and trap and trace yep. authority. For yep. those who don't you know, geek out on this stuff like we do, that originally was about tracking the phone calls. That's caller ID, basically. <laughs> it's not as cool as it, it used to sound pretty cool. Remember when that was new? That was like very, that was very uh, disruptive when caller ID yes. came around. Yes, yes. Um, Couldn't and, make those prank calls anymore. And then, um, so what else? Physical searches, yes, as you say, physical searching added later on. All this under the same model. It's like going to get a warrant, but it's with a different, it's the same calibration of probable cause, but the object is just that you're an agent of a foreign power. And if you are, 
the whole premise of this is that's enough. We want to know what you're talking to people about yep. if you're an agent of a foreign power. And once we have that information, we have the right to introduce it subject to your ability to at least partially confront it under 1806. Right. And so that was always done ex parte and they always lost. Okay. Um, that's about the state of the world on 9-11, right? That, that FISA, although it had been tweaked and expanded in a couple of respects, it was still this warrant model. Um, yeah. Right, an individual an individual assessment of foreign power agency, based on a world in which communications are taking place on copper wires and um, some amount of satellite transmissions, yeah. perhaps. But there was there was a lot of there were questions, but there was a general sensibility to the uh, citizenship specific and yeah. geography specific format of the original FISA, and it had an equilibrium to it that seemed, with all its bells and whistles, that equilibrium was holding steady through the 80s and 90s. So that's that's the point I want to lead on, right, which is that the grand bargain of 1978, where all three branches sort of give a little and get a little, you know, we might, dis- we might dispute who, how much each branch gave and got, um, from all accounts and appearances, largely holds for at least the first two decades of FISA um, to the point where even though there is, I think, rightly, some concern at the margins about the different probable cause standard, which is really unlike in criminal activity, right? It's the prob- uh, one judge said this once, it's the probability of a possibility, um, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, to me, that's pejorative. I mean, it's, that's true for crime, too. Of course it is. But, but right, there... The, and the, and the district courts that consider the question and the circuit courts that consider the question all hold yep. that the FISA warrant is sufficient to satisfy the Fourth Amendment. That's right. Right. So, so you get decisional law to the effect that the FISA process itself is, is com- as understood under classic FISA, comports with the Fourth Amendment. And I'll mention real quick the Fourth Circuit decision in Trung, which deals with this interesting issue of what happens if you're under the foreign intelligence model for a while, and then you flip to the criminal prosecution model. And they introduced the idea that that's fine, all of it's proper, unless you stayed with um, the the foreign intelligence model past the point uh, at which your primary purpose was law enforcement. So that's right. So the primary, so the, the, I think the last point to make in the segue to tomorrow yeah. is the primary purpose piece, right? So one of the things that comes out in Trong and Butenko, and there's one other case in that, in that trio, is that in those contexts where the courts are pressed to decide whether there really is in fact a foreign, whether there really is a foreign intelligence exception to the warrant yeah. clause, before 9-11, every court that says the answer is yes also says, so long as the primary purpose of the surveillance is foreign intelligence surveillance and not ordinary domestic law enforcement. Exactly so, which is why in the 1990s, as DOJ is uh, living with the statute and interpreting it, they build into their understanding of the FISA Act that if the uh, government's purpose has become primarily about law enforcement, it can no longer use it's a FISA too warrant. late to use FISA. All right. And so that... so. I think we'll start tomorrow by talking about whether that was actually a the, necessary reading of, of FISA. We'll talk about the wall. But, but, the, but the wall and the specter of the wall and the desire to tear it down, I think, explains a lot about how FISA is, in many ways, expanded upon, um, twisted, and I think changed in material respects after 9-11. Twisted may not be the word I would have used, but I'll certainly agree that it changes. <laughs> how about the FISA court is twisted? 
I wouldn't say that either. I'd say. All right. Well, yeah, well, 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 I would say we'll have to talk about that tomorrow. You have until tomorrow to figure out how you're going to convince me that that without a warrant <laughs> procedure, a ex parte application in the FISA court satisfies Article Three. We'll have fun tomorrow. All right. So anyway, we, we will spare you from frivolity because your head is probably spinning. And honestly, we don't have anything. We don't have anything. You know, all my teams suck. The Red Sox are up to nothing. <laughs> Yay. Um, all we'll just say is uh, we'll be back tomorrow for episode 97. So the deep dive will continue. And until tomorrow, stay safe out there. Adios.